Hola, mi gente. This is episode two of Popular Culture in the Americas. This episode, we're going to focus on talking about the politics of misrepresentation and gender in the Americas. And obviously, we're going to talk about how that manifests in popular culture throughout the Americas. Now, the issue of motherhood for Latina women has also been very contentious. In fact, when we think about the role of women during the colonial era, it was simply to reproduce more citizens, right? Their reproductive capability has been always a battleground to negotiate or to resist. And I say this because what we know of Latin America is that the rape and pillage produced a lot of the inequalities and the violence that persists today. I cannot talk about Latina women, right, without having to talk about violence, sexual, physical, mental, spiritual, historical. And so I love this topic because aside from being dearly personal, I started teaching a course, Latina women, in my late 20s at Hunter College while I was still a graduate student and always experimental with my methods, but it became almost like a support group one semester because I taught it on a Friday night. And women of all ages, background, and men were there to talk not only about their own experiences, but putting it in conversation with policy, putting their experience in conversation with academic literature, and also talking about the lack of representation that we have in terms of our stories or how they're distorted through Hollywood, now, being in control of our own narrative is a very empowering thing, right? Especially when we use our voices that have been muted by systems and structures that tend to whitewash our stories and, in fact, not be honest about what colonialism, imperialism did to us today. So I actually wanted to dedicate this episode uh, to my mother, right? Because... She is the object and subject for me of most of my research. But when I'm talking about my mom, I'm also talking about myself. I'm also talking about my grandmother. I'm also talking about the violence that produced some of the tensions that we're still trying to resolve. But if there is one thing I could say about my mother is that I am a feminist because of her. Not despite her, honestly. A woman who left her house at the age of 12 to be self-sufficient, go work in the city as a maid, right? Which I, I can't even imagine what type of world looks at a 12-year-old child and is like, hey, yeah, sure, you could clean and care for my own children. But that was my mother's story. And then at 20, she saw an opportunity to leave to New York City. And she left. And in one generation, I'm telling her story. Today, I own that story. But I also want to put into context that it's a shared story. Now, one of my favorite films is all about my mother. And even though it's by Pedro Almodovar and he's talking about Latinidad in its most truest form and the complications that manifest in our relationships, especially matricentric relationships, in the film... In the closing frame of the dedication, he says something that has always stuck to me. He said, to Betty Davis, Gina Rollins, Romy Schneider, and then he goes on to say, to all men who act and become women, to all the people who want to be mothers, and then he dedicates this to his own. So I thought about, how do I adapt that? Because yes, this episode is for my mother, perhaps for yours too. But if I think about the four women and people, rather, that informed my own sense of motherhood, my own sense of gender, identity, and the power I have harnessed from that in my voice, I would say, I would start with Catalina de Erauso, Irene Vilar, who's one of my favorite writers, and she writes Testimony of an Abortion Addict. And I read that book 
when I was still teaching Latina women and we actually talked about it so much that it became part of also my pedagogic practice to think about testimony. What does that mean for us when we put our words on the record, especially for women? Then I would think of J-Lo because on the six changed my life in professional ways, but also in personal ones. I think of Ricky Fort, who was a media personality in Argentina who really wanted to father and mother. And he had twins. And unfortunately, due to a beauty culture and histories that are toxic, we lost him. I think of Gilda, the cumbia singer, who her voice is always present in all of my happy memories. And she too died tragically. And then I think of my mother's story to her, to the women who fight, resist, to the women who are, and to the woman I am. About a year before I actually defended my dissertation, I was working in a community service organization against HIV and violence prevention, domestic violence prevention. But what we learned was that the violence a lot of these Latina immigrant women face was not new to them. It was very meshed in their stories that traveled with them, actually that baggage into North America. Actually, this uh, service agency was in Queens, which has one of the biggest immigrant enclaves And I realized that being an advocate for them took on a toll on my own mental health. Why? Because I could see myself in their stories. Now, I may not have had the same exact experiences, but it is important for us to recognize that there is no Latina experience that is completely free from violence, as sad and sobering as that sounds. But think about it. Even the term mestizaje, right, which is what we come from, this mixing of the races, that was sexual assault in the time of colonialism. There's no consent. And as much as we romanticize these uh, stories, they're not of love, they're of violence. But then in Latina womanhood, there's an inextricability of this. And I used to say this in that class that I taught back then, and I'm repeating it here because it's so true. How many of us were raised with corporal punishment and were told that the reason that they were disciplining us with such acts of violence was because they loved us? So how do you divorce those two ideas? Love, which is supposed to be a positive feeling, with violence, which is completely the opposite. Or is it, right? Now, I think it is important, before I get into the history of this, to talk about how it's in real time. Now, sexual violence against Latinas often intersects with other forms of violence, but I want to share some truths that exist throughout the Americas. On International Women's Day, 41 Guatemalan girls were burned to death at a government-run shelter after they disclosed that they had been sexually abused by shelter staff. In El Salvador, they sentenced a teen rape survivor to 30 years in prison for giving birth to a stillborn baby. It is estimated that nearly 80% of Central American women and girls are sexually assaulted in Mexico on their way to the United States. And the U.S.-Mexico border is a place where American Border Patrol agents are known to sexually assault immigrants. In fact, part of the items that a lot of these women take on their journey up north is birth control. They start taking it with time because they know that this is a real possibility. And it's the price that they feel sometimes that they pay. Now, the rape and femicide of women throughout the Americas has become so widespread, brutal, and almost part of the social fabric that it's been called a pandemic, an epidemic. Sexual violence against Latinas doesn't just happen, though, in Latin American countries. 
Latinas in the United States experience significant rates of sexual violence as well as sexual harassment at school and work. So to get a better sense of why Latinas experience such prevalent rates of violence today, let's go back to history. Let us talk about women and the church in colonial Latin America. How important was the church? Well, let's call it what it was, an instrument of the state. Why? It justified the conquest. It defined what was appropriate and not in indigenous culture, polygamy, cult worship, shamans, matriarchy. Let us not forget that, let's say the Mexicas, before Spanish conquest, and I hate using that word, basically they would celebrate the women who died in childbirth and honor them in the same way as men who died in warfare. They saw their contributions to be equal, very egalitarian. But then again, the church did not like that. And so you saw the church and the state become one. And so real patronato privilege was given by the popes to Spanish kings to name bishops. And that was done um, through corruption, really, favors. And so that history that grounded Latin American countries is why they're so corrupt today. And so the Inquisition was also something that the church was green lighting Social welfare, hospitals, orphanages, schools, prisons, charities, keeper of vital statistics all happened through the church. And I always uh, tell this story of how when I was about maybe eight years old, we went to this massive and mass baptism because they were necessary in the Catholic church in order to get documentation and so we're talking late 80s. I'm not talking about colonial Latin America, but this is certainly a residual of that era. And so you saw this Pope just kind of uh, dousing the crowd with water and baptizing them. In this crowd was my mother's goddaughter, who's about 20 years older than her. So right now, 90 and she still calls my mother Madrina, which is godmother, and my mother hates it. It's actually her older brother's wife. And because she needed to get health insurance, she needed to get an ID, she needed to be baptized. Meanwhile, my family's evangelical, but it was a necessary evil, as they would say, in order to be recognized as a person and citizen. So when I say that the church is an instrument of family control, that also is tied to it. It is the only institution that was authorized to perform marriages. It defined appropriate sexuality, which really, if we break it down, is that sex is for procreation, if you're a woman, right? And sexual desire is bad, as is pleasure. It's sinful. And also the church, her confessions of all. So basically they were kind of like the word on the street and that obviously gets messy. It mediated in family disputes, although that practice is something that is not uncommon. My mother would go to the pastor or in the town where she's from, the local priest who was a little suspicious, but we all knew that, but he's the priest and he would come and give his unsolicited opinion, right? Because he felt he had the moral obligation and authority to do it. So they also reinforced state desires to use marriage to define property and status. And the church was the only institution capable of moderating slavery. So in the Council of Trent, this was from 1543 to 1563. They define marriage as a sacrament. It's a legally binding document, but they made it into something that was not secular. It was divine. Marriage was indissoluble, so you couldn't get divorced, right? And I mean, divorce is a recent right that women gained in places like Chile. I mean, it's not something that they had it as a right that was available to them. 
no one can marry against his or her own will. That's what the Council of Trent noted. But a lot of these marriages were about power, maintaining it, right? Political alliances. I mean, children were treated almost like property, especially girl child, right? Could the Council of Trent said also that the court of last resort for children, especially women, um, was that they were forced to marry against their wishes. And until this day in places uh, throughout Latin America, I remember in Peru for a very long time, if you a woman was gang raped and one of the men offered to marry her and restore her honor, and you can see my quotes, my air quotes, but I promise you they are there, then he wouldn't have to be prosecuted, right? He would go and live his happy married life very much to the misery sometimes of these survivors, but they'd be pressured by their families, right? Because what would people say if they knew that she no longer was a virgin? And so the premium on virginity here was something that was kind of made into policy. Now, I think it's important to understand that the Council of Trent in 1543 still has residuals today. My eldest aunt, Juanita, was sexually assaulted by the man who she married in her old age. Let me backtrack that story. He was her cousin, and he sexually assaulted her, and she was shamed into silence and didn't say anything. And she proceeded to marry the love of her life, who returned her on her wedding night like a sack of potatoes back to my mother's house or my grandmother's house because she no longer was a virgin. And so he felt that that was dishonorable. And she was returned, treated as defective and with no worth and forced to marry her abuser. And so when I say that these legislations still haunt everyday life, this is not a story that is far removed from me. And he beat her. He mistreated her. And they had not legally been married, right? Because of her previous marriage. And when she was dying of cancer, a breast cancer that consumed her, and who her husband did not allow to get a mastectomy because then she would be a defective woman because she no longer had breasts, when it consumed her, my other aunt forced her to get married because then she wouldn't enter the kingdom of God, even though she had just lived hell. Women and the Catholic ideal. Virginity is the highest value. Marriage and sexual propriety, only viable alternative. Sex only for procreation, very anti-abortion. Female subordination to men is expected. And there have been women who respond to this ideology. Sor Juana de la Cruz is a great example. And this is why even though her poem that is infamous, right, for all the right reasons you men read still relevant today. I remember signing this poem in that Latina women class at Hunter College and my students being surprised that it was written in the 1600s and at the same time not. Then you have Santa Rosa de Lima, the comments of Peru, life inside of the comments. I mean, women are not passive recipients of their oppression. Believe you me. Now, Sor Juana de la Cruz, she writes in 1648 to 1695. That's her life, right? But her life was about writing because she only had two options. It was either get married, right? Because she was from an elite status or to go to a convent. And then learn to read and write and use her voice that still rings today true to many of us. Then you think about the convents in Brazil. Now, their function was for education and it was an alternative to childbearing. It was a place for contemplation and a place also of status. But let's look at the class structure. So you have professants or the vows, and these usually were attached to dowries, and they had to be pure of race. If they had a black veil, they had a full dowry. A white veil was a half dowry. 
Women were sent there, unmarried women, wives of traveling husbands, widows, elderly. None of these women take the veil, but to keep them safe amongst other women and in a secured convent so men could then travel and go and be elsewhere in public life. Now, youngers were sent for education and refuge, orphans as well, deflowered girls, which that would be the translation, but girls who were basically sexually abused because to say deflowered also implicates like girls can give consent, but if you're a child, you cannot. Illegitimate girls, right? Because there were also these side families. And this is not something that um, is uncommon either. I've heard of men and seen them in my family who have a few sets of families, if you will. One that is sanctioned and protected by the state. So the one that is born under the convent of marriage is protected. Even to this day, you have in the United States judges who will not divorce pregnant women, even if it is for domestic value. So then the child or the fetus can be born in a marriage and attain the protections that it affords you. Now, if we live in a secular society, why do this? But also there were secular functions of convents. They helped identify wealthy members of society. They keep estates from being divided by partable inheritance because priests used to be able to get married, but they would inherit to their children. And so the church, which has the biggest real estate portfolio in the world, did not like that. So this is why priests were to be celibate. Now, it also keeps families from having daughters married beneath their status, right? And so that was a big deal because why would you go and not better the race, another air quote. But we've heard all of this. And I always say, you know how racist, elitist, classist your family can be when you bring home someone they were not expecting. Now, I have to say, and everyone knows this story, the love of my life, Pablo, um, when I met him, my mother's first words were, you picked the shortest and darkest Argentine you could find because for her in her mind he was going to be taller wider and that was going to be beneficial to our family line which is a very colonial idea that still manifests itself in these type of relationships now I think it is important for us to also think about what happened to women who didn't join convents so Many of them were practicing still religiosity from within the home, right? Or they would join third orders like Franciscans, um, which were more about helping the poor and going out to these communities and being altruistic because there was nothing else for women, right? Like they, it was either be a mother or be a nun or be a whore, Right? But it wasn't that these women were whores, it's that they were not marriage material. What does that mean in colonial Latin America? More than likely, they were black and indigenous. Now, I think that context is critical because according to Professor Rita Laura Segato, who has studied gender-based and sexual violence against indigenous and black women in Brazil, the word rape has the same etymology as rapiña, meaning predatory behavior in Spanish, and rapaz, or young man in Portuguese. And I think this is an important intersection because during the colonial period, conquistadores not only looted, terrorized, and stole from native populations, they also sexually assaulted women, right? And again, this was because Rape, colonization are about power and control, as is imperialism. And so it is important to think about also how poverty gets feminized, right? And how exploitation, control of land and labor from indigenous and enslaved African people was as integral as to the colonial project as was the Catholic Church colonizers and the church use rape as a way to take power and control away from the bodies of 
natives and enslaved women. I want to just say this quote from Damari Rodriguez. She's a Dominican advocate, blogger, and database and resource assistant at the National Sexual Violence Resource Center. And she says, sexual violence was used as a way to control people during the colonial period. Sexual violence is now used to control intimate partners. The connection is that sexual violence was used on a grand scale during colonialism and is now being used on more of an interpersonal level. But yes and no, because when I think about the systemic rape of indigenous women as a tool of war in Peru and in Guatemala, I mean, here we see rape as an instrument of another type of colonization, right? This is a literal ethnic cleansing attempt because they blame the lack of progress on the wombs of these women again. And so conquistadores not only rape the land, but also the bodies, right? And so during colonial times, the theft and exploitation of women of color was accompanied by assault, forced pregnancy, right? So this is why a woman's reproductive capability and being able to be in control of your own is true liberation and agency. And this is why it is still the battleground for us in the Americas. In the old conventional wars with conquered territories came the insemination of women's bodies. Soldiers raped the women of conquered territories as if these bodies were extension of the very territories. And that's something Irene Vilar talks about in the island of Puerto Rico and the story of colonialism. She sees the body of Latin American women. And so there is a widespread colonial rape that happened and played a large role in basically decimating our culture, right? It is estimated that almost 90% of the native populations in the Americas were completely wiped out only 150 years after Columbus arrived in Hispaniola, the island we now know as Quisqueya. Colonizers sexually assaulted large number of women, often spreading also fatal diseases and infections which raised the overall colonial death toll. And that experience lives in my DNA and in my genes. Racism and sexism are used to legitimize colonial and sexual violence from the beginning and until this very day. European conquistadores often use racism and dehumanization of indigenous and African people to justify their actions. Bartolomé de las Casas, which is thought of as a religious leader, was the one who was like, black have no souls, so let's definitely treat them as property because it is an economic proposition, right? And this is why colonialism, genocide, land theft, and slavery are also part of our story that repeats itself. Now, let's bring this into the conversation, right? Let's think about how by 2050, nearly one in three U.S. residents will be Latinos. And this is according to the census. This first stat came out in 2008, which is not coincidental, when a lot of the Latino threat narratives started becoming even more prevalent and circulated in policies. What is the Latino threat narrative? That women of Native descent in California and Texas in these border states would have enough children to one day reconquer or take back their lands. And so how does this manifest in policies? Well, think about how we also criminalize poverty. We make it difficult for women who have more than one child to be seen also as less than a stereotype. And I think about that because also the number of Latina women who have experienced some form of sexual violence by 2050, that number could be up to 10.8 million. Now, according to a 2004 survey, one in six females aged 13 and older will suffer from some form of sexual violence. And this was produced in the Bureau of Justice. Why? 
That doesn't happen in a vacuum. Why is that something that we expect when we should prevent? Now, it's important for us to think about what are some of these barriers that exist for women, Latina women, to talk about these issues that they may face at home, at work. Now, there is a lack of bilingual and bicultural direct service staffs and volunteers. That is important, right? To recognize that if you don't see yourself as someone who is seen, heard, and that matters, now so much can get lost in translation. And so you need to have also more Spanish language services. Because this assumption is that Latina women are monolithic, right? Or they make a lot of essentialist claims like, you only speak Spanish, you only speak English. And I always say this in the capacity of my job as an editor at um, the agency I work for, that even if we are targeting something for, let's say, my mother, who only speaks and reads Spanish, I want to read it too. So having it available in both languages allows for this intergenerational cross-cultural exchanges that are necessary. Because when there is silence between ourselves, then a lot of things happen. A lot of preventable violence can happen. And I was thinking about this in the context of an old Shakira song where she talks about how the silences actually are the reason why we have so many unplanned pregnancies. And so that resonated with me. And the song was Se Quiere Se Mata. And it was really saying the truth because Latina girls reported that they were more likely to avoid further harassment than to seek help or report. Right. So it's almost like you have to figure it out on your own than to disclose. There's a politics to that. But think about it in, in conversation with married Latinas who are less likely to immediately define their experiences of forced rape or sex as that rape and terminate their relationships. Some view sex as a marital obligation. And I know when I got married, that was one of the first things I was told by one of the elders in my mother's church, never deny yourself to your husband. And I was like, well, then if I can't deny myself, then I am not having agency. But that was not a conversation to be had. But also I understood where it came from and why she thought like that. In the same way, another elder told me, don't have just one child. And she goes, because if one dies, then that's it. But these are women also who grow up expecting that one of their children or siblings would die. The fact that my grandmother had 12 children and that the ones that did pass away were as a result of tragedies, but they died in their adulthood. That also gets a gold star because it wasn't that she had a partnership or that my grandfather was so actively involved that they were able to dugger it out. No, that's not the case. My grandfather was an alcoholic. My grandmother, even though her children had to work as well, did it on her own almost. And so let's think about those cultural considerations that are important. Addressing them is necessary for the development of protocols that eliminate access barriers and enhance outreach. And that's the thing. If we're not talking about sex, then we create vulnerabilities for young girls. And I know that's hard because at the same time, it's like Latina women are over-sexualized, right? On television, in Hollywood. But we got to avoid generalizations also, because when we're talking about Latinas, some of them are third generation, no longer residents of Latin America and vice versa. Now, we have to think about language, gender, and also level of acculturation and education, because a lot of these ongoing struggles between Latinos and Latinas, and, you know, how do we identify ourselves? It's rooted in 
some of these very old ideas. For example, Latino men are encouraged to be sexually active, and yet Latino women are socialized to avoid the advances of males, right? Like, no, we cannot go out on a date without a chaperone. I watch a lot of People's Court with Judge Millian, who's Cuban from Miami, but I just find her fascinating and because she actually has such a a strong presence and is so independent of mine too. She's a judge, right? But because of that, she talked about in one episode how when she talks on the phone, she often gets confused for a guy. She doesn't have what would be perceived, I think, as a masculine voice, whatever that means. But I thought it's interesting because when you're assertive, when you're independent, that is not looked at as leadership qualities. That means you are trying to be a guy, right? Uh, you're not a girl, And that's what I was told often in my church. But there's a quote that always gets me that I found awful, but it talks about this dynamic. In Spanish, it says, um, it's a euphemism. Amarra tu perra porque mis perros andan suelto. Tie your female dog because my male dogs are loose. And this is the way you protect women to say, there are a lot of guys out there, so keep yours indoors because then obviously there's going to be sex of some sort, right? Because that's what happens when you go outside. Now, good girls are expected to know how to make themselves be respected. Acepte respetar, to avoid being raped, as if that is enough, right? And if you don't, it's because you were probably wearing something short or you were outside at night or you had too much fun, you drank too much. I'll give you my professional expertise on what that is. It's bullshit. To some Latina communities, le faltó respeto, he disrespected her, is another way of referring to a sexual assault. But the disrespect, it's not the sexual assault alone, right? The disrespect is the society that does not respect her, her story, her autonomy, her body. And so there's such a weird and obsessive emphasis on virginity, And some of these quotes I'm going to use are from young women who were sexually assaulted in Latin America. Me siento sucia y dañada. I feel damaged and dirty. He avergonzado a mi familia. I have shamed my family. Ningún hombre querrá casarse conmigo. No man will ever want to marry me. And you tell me if colonialism is not something that's deeply embedded, not only, obviously, in our genetic profiles, but in how we see ourselves. The loss of control over our bodies is not what actually defines the survivor. Being raped as a virgin does not automatically imply the loss of virginity to rape either, or whatever virginity means, because in this culture, right, it's about purity, whiteness. That's what Alfonsina Storni is talking about in her poem, You Want Me White, right? That premium on virginity. Now, it's important for us to think about how survivors often fear how the assault may affect their standing in the community, their feelings of self-worth, their reproductive options, and future intimate partners and relationships. Now, this is why shame is so toxic, because it is not the responsibility for sexual violence survivors to assign some type of uh, 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 of a value to themselves in a way that kind of excuses the violence or the offenses, right? Like, they can't be like, I was outside at the wrong time, I was wearing the wrong thing, and I heard this so many times at this service agency when we would have things like shame-releasing exercises, or I would get them to start writing their testimony. Testimonio is a written or oral recounting of the victim's story that may allow others to bear witness to their trauma suffered by the survivor. And so it is important to think about why it matters to use our voices because society is pushing back to silence us. And if we silence ourselves, the way I think about it is they win. When I use my voice, 
I win. Looking at the relationship between Hollywood film and Latin America gives us a lot of insight also into the relationship of the U.S., right, as an imperial force and that of the United States and Latin America in terms of this colonial history that exists, but also the way women are represented and men. Now, for me, I'm looking at the mainstream. Uh, this is my analytical framework and these long histories of misrepresentation or the differentiations or flattenings that happen. Obviously, I'm talking about gender, ethnicity, class, generation, and location, but these representations represent. They don't necessarily reflect or mirror, right? And I say re-present. Now, it's about content and signification, what is and what is not there in relation and difference to each other. It does not tell us about effect or interpretation, though they are dominant themes. But I think for us as a practical strategy, when you see Latinos, Latinas, Latin America represented in film, ask yourself the following things. Would that make sense or be funny or sad if it were someone who was from the United States, white, male? And so elements of the scene, what type of music does it include? I purposely included that Casio that we hear so much anytime a Latino is on camera um, in the first episode. But think about also dialogue, costumes, action. What is it quoting to you, a member of this culture? I really love the film Encanto, aside from being about a brown girl from Colombia with big glasses. I don't know. There was a little bit of me I could see in that story, but also in the silences, right? We don't talk about Bruno. We don't talk about Bruno, no, no, no. Now, that song was very popular, but it spoke to some of the pressures that we sometimes have at home to talk about our truths. Now, Latin America is close enough to be familiar, right, to the world. And if we think about Hollywood as a par excellence global ethnographer, it is also far enough to be so foreign and other that we don't fully get it, right? So that's why it is not so weird that someone who is in Argentina in a plot line, and then in the background, you'll see a mariachi. Though when I told you that my Argentine brother-in-law, I had a mariachi for his birthday last month. So this blurring is interesting because one, if I see it on Hollywood, I'm like, dude, that's so wrong, right? Like how many times, like also when I hear the Spanish language, I think it's so funny because they'll speak Spanish and you could tell if they don't speak Spanish. And so they're just playing the role or they'll be like, he's Puerto Rican, but he speaks with a Dominican accent and that it, you can hear it, right? Or when they're like, um, there was this great film, uh, a day without a Mexican. And the plot is that one day, just kind of like the rapture, all Latinos leave, right? In South Central, Los Angeles, you see how the service industries are affected. But there was this one uh, scene that I thought was so funny where it was like, hey, my maid, what let's just say for the purposes of this example, uh, my maid, Laura, 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 uh, Laura, she disappeared. And the husband is like, but she's white. She's blonde hair. And then the response was like, yeah, but she's from Argentina. And it was like, boom, right? Like all of a sudden it is introduced into the mainstream public that you can have Latinos who are white or could pass as white. That was like, woof, revolutionary. But Latin America is far enough, obviously, to have its own politics. And so what we see on film is mostly a flattening of difference. Anything south of the border kind of just melts into a similar otherness, right? You see it like in all the Kahlua commercials, right? Or, you know, Tecate or these, you know, beer brands. And yes, I know it might feel problematic for us to be using beer and Latinos because of the existing stereotypes. But I remember there was a time where the Puerto Rican Day Parade came out and they wanted to 
I I don't think it was Corona. I'm not a big beer drinker anymore, so I don't really remember. But the campaign slogan that they wanted to push for the parade was Emboricuate, which means become Puerto Rican, get drunk. So now when I'm talking about this melting of a similar otherness, we're talking about the land of indigenous brown and black, right? the land of political instability, of disorder, of revolution, the banana republics. It's the land of feminized otherness because they have to be conquered. It's less civilized, it's traditional and frozen in time, at least in relation to what we deem as modern. But it is also the source of raw materials. It is a market for our products, Latin America. This is why, you know, we drink the coffee from the beans that are grown in Guatemala, in Colombia. And I don't want to go into talking about the drug trade and its representation in Latin America because they're almost synonymous, right? Imagine growing up in the 1980s in the Escobar regime, in the height of it, where it was like, if you were Colombian, just by design, you were a drug dealer. And I heard these stereotypes in everyday life, kind of how... Judith Kofer talks about her experiences studying abroad in Oxford and being told vile things on the street because she was Latina and someone somewhere saw West Side Story, right? And so, again, these stereotypes that exist and that emerge in popular culture reflect it. I mean, they find a way to kind of impact our lives in very real ways where we are made to feel not only different but as if we are wrong for something of not our choosing now there are a lot of competing discourses similar to how the rest of the world is treated in film but with its own themes and so you'll see a lot of overlap a lot of tropicalist discourse or the traditional mexican discourse and many times these are actually conflated But for the purposes of understanding these delineations, what is tropicalism? Assigning tropical traces to south of the border, people, locations, cultural forms, it's combustible, fire, fuchsia, yellow palette, tropical background music, so a lot of salsa, drumming, people in heat, and frantic movement. And it's traced actually to any Latin American country and location. So when I see tropicalism and they're talking about, you know, Tierra del Fuego in Argentina, I'm like, "Mm, you need a puffer jacket in the least to survive. It's not, you know, a scorching sun and a palm tree. But again, this has to do also with contemporary assimilationist ideas. Now, let's think about what's a traditional Mexican representation. Mexican culture is inflected. It's also traced to any Latin American location. So you'll always see like larger poor families on film to represent Mexico or different brown and orange color palettes, slow movement, your stasis, a lot of ranchera, mariachi music. But think about it. At the end of the day, they always have a running theme when it comes to women, right? They pose a double threat a sexual one, but also a racial one. And so the ladies, these women are ladies of the night. They're spitfires or self-abnegated, virginal in relation to Roman Catholicism. But this is problematic, not just for women, but I would say even for men. I mean, think about the, the toxicity of machismo. Now, the whole region is gender feminine in relation to the masculine power of the United States and the industrialized West, which makes this really complicated when you think about race and ethnicity, because it's a location, Latin America, of racial otherness, usually the brown race with implicit whiteness of the Spanish and dark brown of the indigenous. And then if you're black, you are made invisible or you are put into a frame that is so problematic. I remember a lot of Colombian soap operas growing up, they would represent black women always working almost like in slavery because they the way they dressed them, the way they spoke, they're Spanish. They're probably there five generations. Their Spanish is still kind of considered, you know, a creole because they still speak, I guess, their native language. That doesn't make sense, but does it have to? 
Now, there are a lot of common themes that you see of Latinos or Latin America in Hollywood. Romance, right? The classic and uh, ethnic twists and the class transgression. Think of Made in Manhattan, the film, or think of Spanglish, another one. War uh, is a common theme, a lot of disorder and tendencies actually to authoritarianism. Another common theme is the economic disarray, the rampant poverty, and extremely unequal distribution of wealth, right? There's so much distance between the elites and, and those that are the rest, right? And so there's also a production of raw materials from bananas to cocaine that happens in Latin America, there's a myth of discovery, like Latin America began when there was a colonial encounter, which is so wrong. The other day, I was watching Wakanda Forever, and as I'm seeing the water people and the, the myth that was woven into the story, I thought of Popovu. And Popovu is actually an origin uh, myth. And so it was interesting because also there was a feminization or queering, if you will, uh, of the people, which, again, I tie back to some of these ideas of our modern culture being superior to the uncivilized nature of, let's say, the, the Mayans or the Incans. And yet, right, they had so much more scientific knowledge because of their relationship with their land. And so there are themes also in relation to sometimes our own political agendas that we see in Hollywood. So during the 40s, it was a lot of representation of Latin America as good neighbors. Then the Cold War, right? Like they would side, obviously, with things like rebel governments, right? One of the films and also the drug war that I remember that was kind of life-changing for me was Toy Soldiers, and for the weirdest reason, so it's about these kids who are in an elite school, boarding school, and then the warlord of one of, and the father, I think, if I remember correctly, of one of the guys is a Colombian drug lord. And it was the first time I had seen a Colombian on television. It was a 1991 film, a group of troublemaking boys. I'm reading from IMDb, their synopsis of these films. They take a stand when terrorists seize control of their boarding school. Yeah. And guess who's the terrorist? A Colombian, right? I remember this movie because on top of it, my mother loved it. I don't, she didn't particularly like, I guess that there was a Colombian drug lord, but the fact that there was a Colombian on screen meant a lot. And it's weird because in a weird way, it, it meant a lot to me. I remember I had a copy of it on VHS that I would play quite a bit. But I think it is important for us to think about what results as a result of these misrepresentation. Now, it is not coincidental that Latin America, in terms of global policy, is a place to stamp out communism and bring democracy. It is the original location of drug trade as well, even though more than 90 cents of every dollar sold from Latin America of cocaine stays in the United States. It's also a source of terrorism, but that doesn't happen in a vacuum. And there's rampant poverty and political instability which leads to illegal migration and undocumented people because the act can be illegal, the person is not, right? If I jaywalk, I commit an illegal act, but that doesn't make me a jaywalker, although it does, right? But whatever, we don't criminalize that in the same way if you're undocumented, though. And women as also part of the drug trade has recently emerged. And so you have Hugo Benavides, who actually was my outside reader on my dissertation. He's at Fordham University, and he writes about, you know, these narco novellas of the drug trade. And, you know, like Sin Seno, No Hay Paraíso. I was watching Bad Boys um, for Life, and I remember being so into the movie, and ah, this stereotype emerges, and it's Kate del Castillo again playing this film. And it's so interesting because she also has this documentary she did with Sean Penn when they went and interviewed El Chapo Guzman in Mexico. So it's almost life imitating art, art imitating life, and that's a problem. 
And so women then become bearers of illegal migration. This is why their reproductive capability becomes a threat to the brownie of America because these birthing people are reproducing, right? Men then are portrayed as ruthless machistas and masculinity in relation to both drug trade and terrorism is interconnected, right? And the implication, obviously, this leads to a form of global citizenship that is also problematic because it's the old stereotypes finding a new audience in space. But at the same time, you're able to see how you have similar themes. Post 9-11, then the terrorist threat comes from the Middle East. And it's a similar way in which we see these tropes emerge and do things to people in real ways. Because also we saw after 9-11, children of our descent born in the United States, their birth weight started going down. So you can tell me that these stereotypes don't actually do things to our bodies because we ingest them. They come, they, they bleed into us, right? And so it becomes a way that we interpret the world and ourselves. And so we have a lot of implications here that are problematic. For example, the U.S. dominance in the hemisphere. And also, either when happy natives are tame because they want it, or unruly ones are tame, that they don't want the taming, it justifies it all more. The end result is still that colonialism gave us civilization and that bestows a superior status to non-Indigenous people, non-Blacks, by design. Since these films that you see in Hollywood also circulate globally, including in Latin America, they generate interpretive communities. And sometimes they are very problematic. One time I was watching Dancing with the Stars, and I say this story a lot because it was one of the many awkward moments we have as a family around the dinner table. But what I remember was that they were watching Dancing with the Stars and there was a hip hop section, right? And uh, Moira Kassan, I think. Anyway, one of the judges, she was saying that the couple were not really good because, and I quote, because I remember they were not as angry as the people of the Bronx, that they had to have more attitude, like more misery almost, and dance that as a way to represent hip-hop. Now, I was watching the Grammys the other night, and they were celebrating the 50 years of hip-hop, and I got to tell you, it was a party. It was a celebration of a culture that has survived and came as a result of all of this systemic and structural violence that, again, we're never passive recipients of. We resist, and that's where our popular culture then obtains its weaponizing ways, right? Like, we could also be in control of our narratives, tell our own stories, represent ourselves. And yes, it's complicated, but it's not impossible to have a shared sense of what we as a people have gone through, what we have survived, and the ways in which we will thrive by putting our stories on the record. In 2021, 11 Latin American countries registered a rate equal to or greater than one victim of femicide or feminicide per 100,000 women. This was the case in Argentina in Bolivia, in Brazil, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, Mexico, Panama, Paraguay, Dominican Republic, Oquisqueya, and Uruguay. Of these countries, the highest rates of femicide or feminicide were registered actually in Honduras, 4.6 cases per 100,000 women. DR, Quisqueya, 2.7 cases per 100,000 women. And El Salvador, 2.4 cases per 100,000 women. That's one too much. I remember that I went to work on a project in DR. I was Quisqueya. I was part of, and I actually, 
I, I, I should say DR because I was working with the World Bank organization in DR and what they were actually saying was that let's pick one of the social problems that we have and let's create a model of creating rapid positive results. So like you identify the problem in the community, create a way to kind of catalyst change by having conversations by different stakeholders. So I was part of this team that was going to work on this project because I knew one of the biggest problems was femicide. And that is some of my interests in terms of my research, but also in terms of my activisms. And so I think it is important to put that delineation because what ended up happening was that I presented on the need to talk about gender relating killing of women per 100,000 because these are very real uh, numbers. And if you think about it in the context of just the Caribbean in general, Belize has registered a rate of 3.5 cases of gender related killing of women per 100,000. And while and Anguilla and the British Virgin Islands have not registered any cases of victims of lethal gender violence in their territories in 2021. I don't know if that's a result of just not reporting and that there's actually no gender violence, right? Like those two things can be very real, right? Like one does not necessarily negate the other. And so... When I went to give this presentation, I was very much uh, talking about the need to focus on this problem and that it was an opportunity also to build collaborative bonds and communities with what was happening next door, understanding also that this is a regional issue. And I was mansplained by a few of my colleagues. And after that, I no longer worked for the organization out of choice. I resigned. He told me that the biggest problem that he found in Latin America, him and all the men at that table, was car theft. So we had an opportunity to talk about femicide and the most important issue that they felt that they needed to solve and address was car theft. Because one of them had recently gotten his brand new car stolen. And yeah, that's when I was like, not for me. And there are times where you choose to die on that hill and you make a point, you resist. But I knew that in 2021, right, that was not going to move forward, that relationship. And so for me, it's important to think about some of the ways in which women have actually sparked hope and created real changes to protect other women and how that has materialized. The Ni Una Menos movement that began in Argentina spread quickly throughout the region and it's actually going beyond. So translating not one woman less, the movement is championing important steps like treating femicide as a violation of human rights, promoting more effective training for members of law enforcement who deal with gender-based violence, and creating an official registry of femicide cases. A growing number of Latin American leaders are beginning to pay attention. For example, following his 2019 election, President Alberto Fernandez created the Ministry of Women, Gender, and Diversity. While creating new ministries and offices won't necessarily fix the problem or turn back the tide of these cases, it does boost awareness and it brings this conversation into the public. But I have to ask myself, having seen the vice president, Cristina Kirchner, who's actually former president of Argentina, there was a viral video that went out when they tried to kill her. A man went up to her with a gun that failed, but tried to eliminate her. It's not her. It's what she represents. Now, I remembered after COVID, there was a lot of fear because of the rates of femicide increasing because we saw that there was an increase in child abuse, but actually they dropped in places like Brazil and Mexico but we're not really sure why. Now, Beatriz Garcia-Nice, she's the Wilson Center project lead on gender-based violence, said the following, femicide rates may not be growing exponentially as they did during the pandemic, but they are not necessarily decreasing either. 
the numbers fluctuate, but the threshold is much higher. And so that means the struggle, the fight, it's not over. I want to review a few definitions that I have used. For example, what is rape culture? Because that sounds kind of loaded. But it is a term that was coined by feminists in the United States in the 1970s. It was designed to show the ways in which society blamed victims of sexual assault and normalized male sexual violence. So it's the things like boys will be boys or homophobia and transphobia is also part of victimization or degradation. So acts like stalking or upskirt photos or groping. And so you start thinking about the ways in which rape culture gets perpetuated globally. But there are real causes for this as well. One, in the case of Latin America, we talk about machismo, which is a double standard when it comes to sexual relationships. Men are told to never take no as an answer, while women are taught to be careful of those men. They're told don't get raped. Now, also the media perpetuates a lot of these ideas. Think about Spanish trap. It's upcoming Latino music genre with lyrics that are deemed vulgar, but they're told that these musical genres are the problem. So in Puerto Rico, when reggaeton actually emerges, they try to make it illegal. El Perreo, our amazing dancing, was also tried to be outlawed in places like Peru. But think about telenovelas and the role that they play and how many tropes of women being hit and raped get put as part of our stories or the memes that are said are just jokes, right? Um, like, for example, I remember there was one that has circulated and it said, if she says no twice, it's a double negative. Now, also, this has a lot to do with conformity. Blythe Barrett writes that we accept this state of constant fear as just another component of being a girl. We text each other when we get home safe, and it does not occur to us that not all of our guy friends have to do the same. And that is very true, right? But it has effects as well. And I think for me, it's the silence. The day I first came to D'Angelo Center, um, this was by Una Brisa Esperanza, A Breeze of Hope. And so she is working on an international program that addresses some of these things. And she said, I realized that what I feared the most was not my aggressor, but the silence. So some statistics that kind of help. In Bolivia, 589 acts of sexual abuse is the first semester of the year were recorded in 2016. In Guatemala, in 2016, 11,399 reports of sexual or physical assault just through August, so the first eight months of the year. In Colombia, the Attorney General's office opened 21,848 investigations for sexual abuse in 2016. And so for me, 2016 was very much a year that impacted me, aside from the fact is when I actually got my PhD, there was so much that was happening in the region and I was going back and forth because my work was in Argentina that, I mean, I was very much invested in that Ni Una Menos movement, but also thinking about reproductive rights. And so as I was so focused on working in this project, I kind of ignored or forgot or did not prioritize that these very things that I was fighting for in the global South were happening in my backyard. And today we have no federal protections against reproductive rights. Like I can't exercise them fully and it's all contingent on where I find myself in the world, right? So I think it is important for us to not only remember this context, but to put it in conversation with all the other conversations we have about popular culture, because it speaks to us, it's supposed to represent us, but at the same time, it can also circulate and perpetuate the very things that are holding us down. Mm -hmm.